Hello and welcome to The Entrepreneurs on Monocle Radio, the show all about inspiring people, innovative companies and fresh ideas in global business. I'm Tom Edwards. Today's programme is all about social enterprise. We'll meet the founder of a brand new business that's reimagining the deployment of social capital. There are 600 people prepared to pick up litter to get some VIP access. Then that's awesome. Like, what else can we do with that? And we'll hear from a catering industry disruptor doing good through food. You know, the judicial system and probation say that these guys should be back in society. Like, why wouldn't we offer them a job? I'd challenge anybody to kind of meet an ex-offender and not want to help them. This is The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. Lauren Scott-Harris is the founder of Earned, a new platform that promises to unite great brands with great causes and then inspire people to get involved and get, in their words, good things done. Those who join in can secure access to in-demand products, to special experiences, to in-demand tickets. So what fired up Lauren to launch what she calls a revolution in consumption? Well, Lauren popped by Midori House and she began by telling me more about the ideas behind the brand. Earned is, we hope, a completely brand new business that came from the idea that standing in line is a massive waste of time. And seeing people get so animated about getting their Glastonbury tickets or their limited edition Nikes or whatever it was and thinking that's just a massive waste of energy. Can we put it to better use? So can you do five hours of tree planting to get your name straight on the list with Glastonbury, not messing around with your browser? Can you do two hours of beach cleaning rather than standing in line for Nike Town? And then we started to play with that concept and it's kind of infinite. It gets really fun. And it's really interesting because a number of the most innovative and sort of forward-looking entrepreneurs that we speak to on this program just always start with this idea of focusing on purpose and addressing some of the profound challenges out there and I guess a cynic might say well you know they're talking a good game but there's real substance behind that do you feel this is the moment to start a conversation like you've done because there does seem to be broader buy-in people understand they need to be more intentional about the decisions they're making yeah I think it's the right time for a few reasons one it was in my head for seven years and Due to tons of circumstances, I just couldn't, I couldn't either get it out on paper and I also couldn't shake the idea. And it was literally waking me up at night. And then suddenly we had COVID and that kind of return to nature and return to community. Like community was such a wonderful part of what I rediscovered in COVID. And I think I really like knowing when there are things around the world that need donations and need help. But it's not until recently that I also realized, you know, that there's a woman three doors down from me who's recently widowed and can do with a smile and a meal every now and then. And just bringing it right back to where we are, it just felt like exactly the right time, actually. So I'm kind of pleased I sat on it for this long because I think everyone's ready now. Well, then tell me a little bit about we're well, working in comms uh, for a long time now, a couple of, couple of decades almost. How did this idea about being cause focused having purpose front and center was that one of those things that you always placed at the center of the projects that you did and the collaborations and the work that you're doing or did it assume greater importance as you went along how, how did that sort of journey happen yeah it's a good question I don't think it was at the core of everything to begin with and I was really lucky because I went straight from university into an internship at Freud Communications which is the best place you could possibly learn the art and the science of communications but, you know, that was 
2004 and we were all we wanted to do was sell more pizza or more Lynx deodorant. I then went over to New York and was really fortunate to meet two guys named Andy and Rich who were starting something in inverted commas called Headspace. And they became one of my first clients when I set up on my own. And it was this wonderful learning of how you can still have a business and it be purposeful, but it can be run like a business and it can be run for profit, which I think is the best way to run anything really, because it keeps it really honest and really direct. I'd also been lucky enough to work on the Red campaign a bit while I was still in London. And just seeing people come up with innovative ideas that could benefit your mental health or your physical health just seemed so much more important to me than selling a volume of something. At the beginning of Earned then, did you find that it was an easier conversation because there had been exemplars like Headspace or just there was this new interest in holistic ways of addressing these these big problems. Did, was it easier than you thought it might be to get it off the ground because there was more buy-in from some of the other stakeholders? I think I understood with Headspace that there can be this kind of push and pull sometimes. The biggest one that we faced with the communications around that was we were talking about meditation and about taking mental health breaks, but we were doing it via your phone. And so immediately there was this kind of contradiction in this push and pull. But when we introduce people to the idea of earn, we immediately talk about the word and how nice it is when you feel you've really earned something. When you earn your pay rise, your paycheck, when you have a beer after you go for a run, the beer tastes better. And then there was this kind of racing influencer culture whereby things were just just evolving in such a way that there just seemed to be so many shortcuts. And, you know, you could you get a Peloton without any money and Kalana it. And you can Amazon Prime anything overnight. And we were consuming at this fierce pace. Then when I had a son, I was really questioning the world in which he was going to grow up in. And this constant battle, really, with yourself almost, with this climate anxiety and consumption anxiety. And that's where we started. That's where we kind of introduced the premise of Earned From, which is can we bring those things closer together? And can we consume with a bit more intention? We are just trying to find responsible ways to also help people's mental health. You know, it's so great when you do. I cannot tell you how much fun litter picking is. And everyone starts really gingerly and you're sort of going, oh, God, what's that? And within two hours, people are waving and going, I found a rat. And everyone's cheering them on. And that as well, like the little bonding experiences that you have just walking along with people, it's very tangible and it's very sweet and it's very good for you. And I think one of the interesting things here is about scale. Uh, and we'll talk about scaling the enterprise in a minute. But I think one of the issues with these big problems that you've highlighted, they're so huge in scale, aren't they? If you talk about marine pollution or climate crisis or rising temperatures, there is that feeling, well, I could make a couple of small changes, but it's not going to change anything. And actually, if you do something really hands-on as an advocate, you can see the difference. It might be that this beach was tarnished by plastic and now just this small part of it is is clean. And that it's really important for people. It's like those Buddhist mantras about single steps starting the longest journey. It's really important to just make those little incremental changes. Absolutely. And what we're about is behaviour change. Because if you do spend two hours picking up stuff, you're pretty grumpy the next time you see someone flick a fag butt on the street. So it does start changing your behavior. And my dream is in a few years. So my son is six and he's called Gray. And if he has to say in three years, mommy, I really want the new FIFA video game. Can we go to the food bank? And we have to do three hours in a food bank to skip the queue to buy the video. I think that would be lovely. And I'd be really proud. And I'd also then, by the way, let him play the video games all afternoon. <laughs> Maybe just for one, one afternoon. <laughs> I know this is, it's, it's a balancing act, isn't yeah. it? Talk about these brand partnerships then. You're tying these cause and purpose related initiatives to brands. How do you go about identifying potential partners? What are the mechanics of making those decisions about 
with whom to partner and what the partnerships actually look like? Yeah, it's a great question. So the first thing is we realised really quickly we needed to talk to leader brands first. There are tons of wonderful brands out there, but you don't really realise until you start sifting through them those that are the pioneers and those that have done something second or third. So we kind of made ourselves a shortlist of brands that we thought would be brave enough to be the first few. And with each one, we had a little bit more data and a little bit more information, and we could tell a bit more about how consumers had reacted to it. And in each instance, that makes the conversation easier and easier. So our last partnership was with the River Cafe. We were so grateful that they decided to partner with us. Everyone wants a reservation there. So they had all this kind of heat and energy that wasn't being used. So we said, can we give people a secret reservations email if they come and do two hours of litter picking on the Thames? And they said, yep, absolutely fine. So 30 people came along, but those 30 people signed up in five minutes, we had 600 people on the waiting list to get into a litter picking event. And that's when it's really fun. If there are 600 people prepared to pick up litter to get some VIP access, then that's awesome. Like, what else can we do with that? And then we're having some really fun conversations with artists. I mean, the River Cafe is obviously a literal one. They look at the river all day. That was an easy one to pick. But when we're talking to artists or musicians, we just say to them, like, what is it that bothers you? And they might say, it's not actually plastic pollution, it's baby donkeys. And I'm really worried about their ingrowing hooves. And as such, the first 50 people that do 20 hours in a donkey sanctuary are getting tickets to my call, getting in my VIP zone. It can be fun and it can be playful. But I think it's such a lovely thought that the artist or the individual can take back their spotlight and say, no, if you really like me, if you really want to come to my concert or my restaurant or whatever it is, this is what's important to me. And I want you to be my army and I'd love you to go and do this for me rather than just buy more shirts or whatever it would be that's shilling a product. So I think that's a really fun message. And then we're talking to a very exciting musician at the moment who I won't jinx by saying because we're not quite there yet but we emailed and we said listen you've just sold 30,000 tickets in 30 minutes if you can get 30,000 people to do that what else can you get them to do can we get them to like paint all the schools in the UK that need painting in one great glorious weekend because if that's the the way to merit the first dibs on tickets to your concert or your gig whatever it is should we do it and that's the message I think that we're having such success with. We say to the brands or to the person, like, you don't have followers. Everyone talks about followers. You have an army. Mm. What do you want them to do? Because we can do awesome stuff with this. And then the people love it. So hopefully it's always a win for the cause, win for the brand and win for the consumer. What I find interesting is you spoke earlier about during the pandemic, this idea of well, not rediscovering community, but underscoring the community was there already. It was it just came back to you. And it is interesting, as you say, if you think of followers of a brand or fans of a restaurant or a musician, that is a community. And sometimes they just need maybe a little bit of galvanizing. And I guess what's thrilling for the partners that you work with is it does something maybe really powerful for their brand as well, because people can then see whether they've participated or not. This is a brand with some substance. It's got intention. But here's what we're actually doing. Too often the brand's ambitions are by 2030 will. And it's a bit unprovable and it's a bit nebulous. But this is something with real substance. And that must be a great sell, I guess, for some some of these brands. It's really nice. And then the other thing, which we not realised until we started doing it, is the brands are meeting their super fans. The first one we did, actually. So you were asking about how we started. And this was just really sweet. But my son's state school needed the playground rebuilt. It wasn't high enough on their to-do list to be done immediately. It did really need to be done. They couldn't raise the money to do it. They needed two grand or so. The parents didn't want to volunteer. They're knackered. It was going to take the groundsman a month. So we asked if we could take on that problem. And we said, we think we can do it for about 250 quid. And they said, no, you're mad. 
but we spent 250 quid on silver tankards and we displayed them in the local pub and they said, if you'd like a tankard with your name engraved on it and your first pint for free in August, this lovely pub called The Brown Dog, um, you need to come and help rebuild the playground this weekend. 40 volunteers, immediately. But the lovely thing was, of course, those 40 people have never really spoken to each other because we're British and we don't <laughs> do that. Everyone spends the weekend borrowing hammers and spades and all that stuff. But then the pub got more business because all those people now know that they'll bump into each other in the pub, but they love telling, in inverted commas, tourists when other people come into the pub and go, I'd like a tankard, and they go, no, 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 you had to earn it. And it's made this little club and this little tribe, and that's awesome for brands. You know, it's literally the kind of gig T-shirt. You know, mm. it's on sales one time only, but it's that shared experience, and then it's your memento of it. And it's so sweet. It, even now we go into the pub and people are clinking these little tankards and it's wonderful. <laughs> and what would you say? I guess there would still be, not, not cynics, maybe just sceptics who say, look, I've got a great idea, but I'm not sure I can incorporate some of these positive social environmental impact ideas because, well, it sounds challenging and I can maybe understand on a micro level that I could do it but once the scale grows and I've got lofty ambitions for my business how do I keep making sure those values are meshed into it what would you say to someone if they said look I just I doubt that I could maintain that momentum so I think what we would like Earn to be and are working on making it is a platform on which causes can post what they need and brands can say that they'll support so it might be that to get your Desmond and Dempsey, wonderful 40% discount. You could do anything with Age UK around the UK. So they just go, yep, this is what we want to support for the year. Age UK will then verify when you've done it. And you might become a befriender. You might do home-cooked meals. You might go and help with the bingo night, whatever it is. But you'll go, you'll check in. And once you've done it, you will be ticked off and afforded your whatever the lovely brand benefit is. Now, the lovely thing about that is, one, we don't have to keep doing all these singular events because of course that's not very scalable but two it means that a brand can just put their weight and their fans behind something for a year for five years for 10 years doesn't matter and say anyone that gives their time to this organization there are vips and that's what we're talking about is inventing this new kind of vip which is people that give their time so i think it can evolve to that that's certainly the way that we're designing it and pulling it but I also think that helps the brand just keep up this constant, steady connection with the cause without it having to be every three months, right? We're doing a huge, great big litter pick or whatever that would be. So that's what we hope it will get to, to kind of simplify it, but also just keep it going and, and make it completely normal and do a go that a brand would have someone that they're sending all this energy to. Tell us a bit about some of the challenges, because I guess any entrepreneurial journey, and, and again, it might be interesting to reflect back on your experience, you know, running the agency as well. What have been some of those those big challenges? And are they ever so profound that they become existential and you think, oh, why am I doing this? Or are they always just things where they help you to actually refocus on mm. the core goals and the core values of, of what you're trying to do? I mean, I think the biggest challenge with Ernt is it is a new type of business and it does involve some of those contradictions. So it's a for-profit business, but we are doing good along the way. There's always these questions of scale, which you get into. But I think at the beginning, it was so deep down, it needed to bubble up within me and then get onto paper. And then I got the advisory board together. So it's been so long in the making. Whenever something happens and we talk to a cause or we talk to someone that's come on as a consumer or a brand... The feedback powers us for the next week or so. It's so wonderful and tangible and lovely. But then you'll walk into a meeting and someone just doesn't get it. And it's not that they don't get the ethos of it, but they'll just say, this is never going to scale or this is never going to work. And luckily, having sat next to Headspace, One Fine Today and a few other startups, 
I knew that that would be some of the feedback, but it doesn't mean you don't take it personally for the first journey. And with each little step forward, it solidifies and we feel stronger and we feel more resilient against the naysayers. But then honestly, with each little cause that gets in touch and says, whatever, we're a tiny little something down in Brighton, can you help us? And the fact that we can say yes to all of them is just one little happy message from a cause or a consumer is 20 times more powerful than one naysayer. But yeah, you have to ride the waves and we have days where everything's going right and then one where a bomb just gets dropped. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh. Um, let me let me sort of wind back. You know you were saying about having these moments of reflection where you'd, you know, it'd keep you up at night. You'd wake in a sweat and in a funk about what am I doing and how and I think it's really interesting that point about having kids and then having this reflection about what would I say if they were to ask me mummy what did you do or why didn't you do dot 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 dot. How much has that doubt, that worry, that sleeplessness, it may be being replaced with a different stress. Oh, God, we've got to do this. And the deadlines, you know, hoved into view and all the rest of it. Has that stopped? Or do you just replace one set of worries with a, <laughs> with a different as a, as a founder and business leader? I think it's probably slightly replacing one set with the other. But I have the enormous privilege to be mother to a six-year-old. And there is nothing more refreshing than a six-year-old's view on anything. Can, um, can they though, whether, you, whether you ask <laughs> exactly. for it or not. Yeah. But, you know, the other thing is he's a little boy and it's just him, myself and an enormous dog. But he would like constant entertainment. And there is occasionally, when it's hammering it down with rain, the temptation to just go, OK, fine, have a screen. But we most recently, we went on a little trip to Bali, actually, to meet someone we wanted to work with for Ernst, this incredible pair of brothers called Sungai Watch the name of their cause and they put barriers in the rivers in Indonesia to stop all the plastic going out but they're getting 10 million views on a video of rubbish and they're so charming and so magnetic but if you ask my son what his favourite thing was on our entire trip it was standing in the mangroves with them pulling plastic after plastic after plastic out of the river and then we went back and we did a little assembly on it and it just felt so wonderful like honestly he preferred it to going to a water park it was honestly, it was one of the most fun mornings of my entire life because kids, you know, they get it so quickly, but they're not, you know, they're not doing it for the same reasons as us. It's actually a really enjoyable little activity. So, no, I, I don't get the anxiety of what am I doing for the world, but I do get the anxiety of, wow, with every step, with every new investor, you are responsible for more people and for mm. making sure that the impact's right and that money's not being wasted on anything and, you know, all that type of stuff. So it's more a duty of care, I think, than a what am I doing. Yeah, but that's a pretty good place to be. And I guess if your son does enough mangrove litter picking, maybe he earns, I don't know what it'd be, Nintendo Switch, whatever, something like Absolutely. that. Um, Absolutely. Hopefully he won't listen. He won't call in that favour. <laughs> Let's look ahead. And I know it's tricky because I guess you've already mentioned that this perhaps isn't a business, an enterprise that scales along the predictable lines of others in terms of growth by market or however you want to, to calibrate it. But in a sense, that's the point, isn't it? We need to find new metrics by which we measure what a successful business is. It shouldn't just be about P&L. That's important. And as you said earlier, a sustainable business starts by it has to be around. So it has to deliver in that sense. But we need these other metrics. Are you growing in confidence, Lauren, that... As things go on, the world, if you like, or those finance sceptics will be a bit more open-minded about what constitutes a successful business with which they should be associated. And it's not just bottom line. It has to be about something more. Are we, are we making Absolutely. inroads? Absolutely. Yeah, we really are. And actually, we know immediately when we found the right investors because they all normally they have children who are early teens or younger 
and they just want to be part of an idea that's a solution. And they're not the ones that are going, well, what's the exit in 10 years' time? I love it when people ask that question because of course, the best thing to say is I have absolutely no idea. Because if I knew that, we'd be mimicking something else. And we're not. We're completely new. We will keep evolving. But at the core is that same drumbeat, which is converting energy and desire for one thing into stuff that the planet or society needs. So whatever form that takes, that's all we need. Now we just need to scope out exactly which way we grow it. But the reactions that we get from brands and from causes and from consumers, like we know we're onto something because it's just landing in such a nice way. Well, Lauren, look, it's been really fascinating hearing about your journey with Earned. And I, I think these are the businesses, in fact, that we most like hearing about because, as you say, they challenge sort of preconceptions and they offer genuine solutions by true innovation. It's not a tweak of an existing model. It's something com completely different. One of my other cliche questions I always ask is, and you kind of addressed this already, you know, where, where would we be if we have this conversation in five years or 10 years, whatever, what do you think? Is there a danger to trying to, to, to do that? If I was to say, you know, what do you think will be your preoccupations if we're a decade down the track now? Or do, or do you try and, keep, no, try and just put one, one foot in front of the other in the short term? I love that. I see and hope that there's, let's say we're still using apps. I have no idea about the technology. I want you to be able to get off the Eurostar in Paris, decide you want to go to the Louvre, that there's no way you're queuing four hours and see that there's a hour-long earned activity in the gardens to Tuileries, picking up litter that you can do with your kids. And then you're going to get a VIP pass to skip all the queues in Paris that day at all the museums. I want it to be part of common parlance, you know, as I said with my son, like, mommy, please take me to the, because I want the. Um, so I get so excited about that. And we used to have this wonderful, one of the founders of Headspace had this wonderful um, thing that we all used to do. And, and we would talk really in like, very early days of the business about how Headspace would work for astronauts when all of us were going to space. And the first time we did it, we were all sort of giggling and thinking it was slightly nuts. But that kind of, you know, pointing the arrow really far down the line and then just having total imaginary scenarios is actually, I think, how you, you keep the North Star. So, yeah, I'm not sure totally what the preoccupations will be, but that will be what we're trying to get done. And it'll be a, a fun journey to get there, I'm sure. It's sort of reimagining social capital. I think it's really, really interesting. And it's certainly been a pleasure to hear all about it. Lauren, thanks for coming to have Thank a chat with us. Thank you very much. That was Lauren Scott-Harris, the founder of Earned. Since she dropped in to see us, Earned has announced their first official travel partnership with innovative hospitality brand Design Hotels. You can find out more about that and sign up at earned.co.uk. And do be sure to look out for their other exciting collaborations. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. Alex Head is the CEO of Social Pantry, a stylish events and catering company at the forefront of sustainable and socially conscious food with production venues, cafes and restaurants across London. Alex stopped by Midori House to talk to Laura Kramer about her vision for the seasonality-led venture and how it's become a leader in employing ex-offenders, a global issue that many countries need to address, by offering more than a job, delivering real support that people need as they're reintegrated in society. Here's Alex. 
So Social Pantry, I started about 11 years ago, just very humble beginnings in my kitchen um, where I was renting a little flat in Battersea and I had been working in the hospitality industry for many years. I'd always been doing bits on the side. When I was 16, I started selling sandwiches on my bike. So it'd been a long time coming, bit of a hustle. And actually, I was working for some other entrepreneurs and we opened a pizza place, um, which actually didn't work out. So after closing this new opening, I'd learned lots and, you know, knew the industry quite well. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to take this little side hustle and create a business from it. And then Social Pantry was born. We were speaking before we actually started recording about how that pizza place experience taught you so much. And the mistakes that you've seen and made along the way as an entrepreneur have really shaped the vision you have for Social Pantry, work-life balance and employee welfare and the internal company culture. Can you give me some examples of what this looks like in practice? So a few years ago, three and a half years ago, actually, we, we sent our first Emma Sarah. We sent her off to do a stage. She was in the kitchen. So stage is where you would go and work in somebody else's restaurant for a week. So Social Pantry pay them, but they go and work and get experience. So now at Social Pantry, when you've done a year in the kitchen, you go and do a stage. So after the first year, you go and do a stage at Silo, which is a zero-waste restaurant in East London. But once you've been there a few years, Sarah went to Helsinki last year to work with a really cool zero-waste restaurant over there. We're just in chats with one of my favourite restaurants in Paris. Um, we're kind of looking at Japan. So opportunities, sky's the limit, really. But upskilling, I think, is so important. So the kitchen team have stages, also kind of going to see suppliers, so from kind of the butcher to vineyards. But also in terms of our front of house team, it's kind of their WSET courses and barista courses. So we'll always try and kind of upskill them where possible. I think that's so important because we often hear that there are owners who are afraid of upskilling employees out of a fear of losing them. But indeed, you're realizing you want the best people on your team. And that requires taking that risk in the process of also helping them grow. On that topic, one of the ways Social Pantry sets itself apart is by collaborating with local prisons and charities to provide job opportunities to ex-offenders. How did this initiative begin? I think it was about eight years ago I had my first ever prison visit next to Belmarsh. It's a YOI, so Young Offenders. And I went in with a charity called Key for Life and I met a really brilliant gentleman called Ruben. And he has been my buddy and friend ever since. He just is fantastic. So when I was going in, I was going in as a mentor and I thought, oh, gosh, what do I, you know, what am I going to have in common? What am I going to chat about? And actually, we bonded over giving up smoking. So, you know, we chatted away about how hard it was. And he was kind of saying, you know, that's his only release in prison is having a fag. And I was like, oh, God, yeah, I know what you mean. So it was really, it was really fun. And actually, we just got on really well. And it was through that charity that they then asked me to employ one of the other prison leavers. A gentleman called Sue Hale, and at that time I employed kind of 10 or so people. So I just sat them down. I said, Hey guys, do you want to, you're happy working alongside an ex offender? And they said, Sure, absolutely, which is brilliant. You know, what I think is that if the judicial system and probation say that these guys should be back in society, like why wouldn't we offer them a job? Like why wouldn't we? A lot of them have got transferable skills, they're really ambitious, they're clever, they're switched on, they're brilliant. I'd challenge anybody to kind of meet an ex offender and not want to help them. And I think it's important to bear in mind that pre going into prison, some of these guys have had a really tough, tough start. So not condoning any of the crimes, and but ultimately lots of the guys I've met have gone care home to care home, prison to prison. But ultimately coming out is a fresh start and they just haven't had much opportunity. So for us, once they've served their time and they come out into society, that's when we say, hey, listen, there's a paid job here. If you want it, it's yours to take. And if you don't, don't bother. So... 
for us, that was my attitude when I started. And actually, along the way, have met some really, really fantastic young guys, fantastic older guys that are coming out of prison. And adjusting to life on the outside, if you've been in prison for a long time, is definitely challenging. So we support in a number of ways, from kind of buying them a bus card or a bus pass, you know, doing that initial commute with them. Got a brilliant HR and culture manager, Sylvia, so she often kind of do a commute with them for the first time. And then some of them come out, some of the younger guys, you know, potentially have housing issues or don't kind of have a home, you know, to go back to. So really offering them a job is the only stable thing that they've got. Saying that some people come out and are totally fine and hit the ground running, you've got somewhere to live and a family to go back to and are brilliant and, you know, that's all behind them. But really when when, when they're up against it, if we've offered a job and a bit of support and a friendly coffee here and there, that actually it really can help them and it does change their outlook and their positivity and, and it definitely changes their chances of reoffending for sure. Your team actually sent a clip of Ruben and I want to play it right now could come to work and then basically knowing that you're going to be getting paid guaranteed you don't need to do this and do other mm. stuff being here has helped a lot that way what does it mean to you when you hear this feedback from ruben and indeed other ex-offenders on the team yeah i think they're always so grateful for the opportunity and that's you know that's always really pleasing to hear i also think my team love working alongside them as well the team whenever interviewed or asked or why they're joining social pantry is always cited as a you know really popular part of it so for me a diverse workforce is just really important but they are brilliant like i need to thank the guys as much as they, as they can have thanked me but yeah i was naughty growing up and you know didn't make mistakes as bad as those guys but you know why wouldn't we kind of offer that chance and it's so great to hear that they're grateful and are loving it That was Alex Head, the CEO of Social Pantry, in conversation with our Laura Kramer. You can learn more about the work that Alex and her colleagues do. Head to socialpantry.co.uk. And that's it for this episode of The Programme. We'll be back at the same time next week. Do look out in the meantime for Eureka, available every Friday. The Entrepreneur's Programme is produced by Laura Kramer with mixing and editing by Tamsin Howard. You can listen again and find out more about The Entrepreneur's by heading to monocle.com. That's where you can also subscribe to Monocle magazine and read more about better businesses every month. You can also follow us and catch up with the archive via your preferred podcast platform. To get in touch, drop a note to Laura. She's on lrk at monocle.com. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneur's.